Hey, welcome back to the One Link Podcast, where we're keeping trucking through our stories from John, Bob, and Brett about how God gave them a heart for the nations, how he called them into campus ministry, and ultimately how he led John to start One Link International, how Bob and Brett came in and helped really put that initial DNA and begin to form it. It's really an amazing thing that God put all this together. There's some things about One Link that are different than a lot of other organizations, and we're going to talk through them and hear how some of those came to be, as well as just hear some cool stories of things God has done. So, let's jump in with a question for John. One of the things that seems to be a distinctive of One Link is that that we don't just go recruit students, but that we partner with campus ministries. How did you come to set that DNA in place? You know, you learn a lot of things the hard way. I hired Rusty. Rusty had been in and had to come back. His mother was very ill and passed away. He came back a little early. And so I just committed. I really wanted to talk to Rusty about coming on staff, but he needed some time with his dad. So he worked with his dad for a year and then came on staff. And his job was to recruit students to go on projects. We realized, and I don't remember, James, what exactly it was, but we realized how difficult it would be to get on campuses and recruit students. It created a number of problems. Number one, you'd have to do it every year because students graduated. Secondly, they would do what their campus ministry was going to be doing. So I told Rusty after the first year, we're, we're going at this backwards. We need to talk to campus leaders and not associates. We've got to talk to decision makers. And so that's what we began to do. And one of the first people that Rusty talked to was David, of course, David had been looking, and certainly with Rusty having a great experience, others heard about it. Often workers on the field would recommend people. There were people that we knew, and just we just began to cast the vision. Going back to Numbers 11, 16 and 17, if you'll call unto you elders who are leaders and officials among the people and have them come and stand with you, if you'll share the vision with them, then I'll take of the spirit I've put on you and put it on them. So it was, it was very pragmatic. We just knew we had to have decision makers and it had to be somebody that was established on the campus with the understanding that the people we would work with overseas, they set the agenda as far as strategically what we're going to do. If they're not doing student ministry, if they're not interested in reaching students, We'll just pray for them and bless them and move to someone who wants to to reach out to students. From a little bit of what you've told me and then what I've gathered from some other people, like the IMB really wasn't, or any other mission agency, really wasn't focusing on college students. But that seemed to shift in how long was it until that became a major? Yeah, that's a great question. I know in the early days, probably the first five or six years, 90% of the folks who did summer work in the 1040 window were one of the students. Whoa, did you hear that? That's so good. I'm going to play that again for you. 90% of the folks who did summer work in the 1040 window were one of the students. Can you imagine that? I'm honored to be a part of an organization 
it was a part of the spear point of sending students to the 1040 window. I'm really grateful that we're no longer sending 90%. I'm grateful that that is a vision and a value that is picked up. Now, don't mistake me. Everybody here at OneLink is really big proponents that more people need to be sending to the 1040 window. But I'm so glad that it's not 90% anymore. Now, speaking of sending to hard places, here's Bob again. When we went into northern China to the campus, there were no believers. And we just, every night, we met together, the 10 of us, and prayed. And we began to relate to them, played basketball. We fielded a pretty good basketball team and could take them on pretty well. And we had a couple of guys who were, yeah, basketball. And, and the students would be three deep around the court. Chinese, of course, didn't like to, to lose. So we we played hard, but it wasn't like we were so in their face. We talked about that. But we had some really good basketball players that played high school basketball. We had one gal that that could match up with most of their guys. But we began to, to win a hearing. As God opened up doors, we began to get close to them, to a number of them and maybe 20 or 30 that we begin to build closer relationships. And some of that begin to come to Christ. And we had to be really careful with that because sometimes I was talking, I had a relationship with two guys who were Marxists, these two college students. And there was an older guy that would kept walking back and forth about every five minutes, right close to us, monitoring that conversation. But the Chinese, they weren't quite as in touch with that, you know, so we had to kind of subtly help them to be careful. One guy in particular, this is a story, became a, a believer. And as we begin to leave to come back home right at the end of July, he said, you know, I didn't become a believer just because of the things you talked about in the Bible. We'd go up on a on a mountain, kind of clandestinely sneak up there, teach them some worship songs and things. He said, but the reason I became a believer was because of the love I saw in your team. And he said, I'd never, ever experienced that ever in my life. And the way you treated each other, the way you talked to each other, the way you hung out and that just so drew me in to the gospel. I think that was a, a great point. And let me let me share with this with you. And this may sound a little edgy, but when we came back, came back through Dallas Fort Worth Airport, and we had given these not only eight weeks, but certainly the week of orientation, and then three months or so preparing at campus. So we were standing in a circle at, uh, let me see if I can get through this, at uh, DFW, and we were all crying. And we were reflecting on the, on the song by Andre Crouch, My Tribute. You know, how can I say thanks for the things God has done? And that's like a, a picture of that summer and what it meant to us. So, you know, I, I can't even 
I don't have a category to really talk about it much. 25, 30 years later, there's still emotion attached to that. As they begin sending, intentionally sending to hard to reach places, harder to access places, it made them realize that they had to really do some better training. Here's John on training. It's a tough place to be. And you've got to have some really good training to be able to to go there. And that was something I was committed to, is that we're gonna we're gonna train students so that the, they can function and be a blessing to workers in difficult places. And when I talk about training, I'm not talking about there's a difference between t- teaching and training. You can have teaching with no training. You cannot have training without teaching. So tra- teaching typically is passing information. Training is giving people an opportunity to practice the information that they're getting. At some point, I, I don't know, maybe eight or 10 years in when things begin to shift. Yeah, I was going to ask about that because training is one of our distinctives, you know, simulation based. And yeah, to the extent possible, can you walk me through what you can remember about kind of like how that evolved? We started doing uh, our team lead training. Our, the, there's kind of two pieces. We started working with our team leaders because we knew that for students to go, staff couldn't be the one. If they're going to be there eight to 10 weeks, generally speaking, staff couldn't lead them. They couldn't be gone from family that long. So what happened, first of all, at our, at our training is a number of us were traveling. And as we were traveling, we experienced things that we thought, this is going to happen to our students. Uh, we'd lose luggage. We'd get pulled aside by an official, maybe a maybe a policeman, whomever, and they'd ask questions we wouldn't know how to answer them. We would do something culturally that just was not appropriate. So as the and I had decided that either myself or one of our board or both would we would not go anywhere where somebody on staff or the board had not connected with the worker determined, is this going to be a good fit? What kind of students do they need? You know, if you go into the 1040 window, there are places that you don't, there's some places you don't want to send students. Or if you do, they need to be very, very mature. We just began to think of things that we could do to really help students get through that process and be successful at it. So most everything that we built into the training came because it was something one of us had faced. The first couple of years, actually the first year that we had had our week of training, it was <laughs> students came straight from finals. They came to what became known as O-Week, orientation week. We'd put them in chairs, give them a notebook and a pencil, and they would listen to lectures all day. And they left not getting anything out of it because it was too much information and they were already brain dead. So we needed to have some things that that they could actually do and experience. Um, I remember one of the, I I want to say a funny thing, 
But it wasn't funny. Ha ha. It was like, we can't do this. In Oklahoma, as you're aware, there's a lot of red clay, red dirt. And so we were in Norman doing orientation and the foundation of the building we're in needed some shoring up. And so we formed a bucket brigade, had the students pass the bucket and uh, really, really helped shore up that work. It was work that needed to be done. They thought we were just moving dirt, but uh, it really needed to be done. So they were hot, nasty, dirty, got had red all over them. They go in to take their showers and halfway through their showers, we just shut the water off. Now, have you ever experienced that happen overseas? Yeah, something pretty similar. Maybe not moving dirt, but a lot of water outages, electrical outages. Right. So we'd do that or we'd be having a meeting at night. I remember one night, one of our guys, Dave Mitchell, had a, a miner's cap on with the light. All the lights, all the electricity went off. He just flipped that on and just kept going. So... Things like that, things that we'd experienced, we wanted to give them a chance to experience. And then from that, we realized we need to give the team leaders some extra help. And so it was so important to help them learn how to how to lead their team. So it, it was born out of our own experiences. Do you remember at what point in time? So it seemed like from what I've gathered, like, so the polis force came in first, you had the security personnel. At what point in time did we begin putting in, when did we create our own country and put in nationals? And <laughs> Yeah, I think when we moved from, I think when we moved from Oklahoma with our training, we outgrew the place there and moved up to uh, Salina, Kansas. We were having so many students, we had to figure out a way to divide them primarily based on the place they were going. And one of our board members and guy that had worked overseas for years said, why don't you set up tribes? You can keep them separate that way. You could do some specific training based on where they're going. So I think that was about 2001, as best I remember. And it really just evolved. It it wasn't something that we felt like, hey, we've got to do this. Just as we sat around and talked because we, we evaluated every year and we paid lots of attention to the evaluation the students gave to volunteers. I had a very specific role in all this, but there were so many others. There were some very specific things that God did as we learned what we needed to do and reasons that I think we were successful to do that. It was the right time. It was clearly God's hand moving. It was joining him in things we knew he was already doing and being able to see those things. So I think it was it was about 2001, 2002, where we started, when we started having tribes and then the things that we were doing that were events, some of them didn't fit all the students. So we thought, well, we need to have specific things if you're going here. One of the repeated themes is it was always a changing process. Here's another thing you might not have thought about that changed along the way. Even things like 
watching our, our applications, we ask very hard questions. We would never have been as successful as we as one link is if we hadn't drawn students from campus groups that were investing in them already. And uh, so most of the great work in these students' lives didn't come at O-Week. It came because of campus folks that invested in them, that shared our values, that really wanted to make a difference on a broader scale. We knew the questions that we wanted to ask, we wanted to find out about. We wanted students that were already involved in doing EV work, that were already giving attention to personal holiness and that were teachable. So we, we designed questions around that. Questions changed, some from year to year. I got a lot of pushback on some of the questions that campus leaders said, you know, these students won't answer that question. You're setting them up to lie to you because they're not going to tell you the truth. And these were questions about their own moral purity and stuff like that. The truth of the matter was they told us things they'd never told anyone before. And occasionally there would be students that would just say, you know, this is not going to be a good trip for you. Why don't you work on this area for a year and then let's apply again next year? It developed. We didn't just do it. We'd learn hard lessons and make a change for the next one. I find it a very comforting thing to know that these guys didn't have it all figured out from the very beginning. Thankfully, God continued to, and God will help you continue to refine the things in your life too, especially if you're a student. You don't think you have to figure it all out. Get started. Things can adjust as you go. One of the things about doing the kind of training that we do is it requires a really high, large pool of qualified volunteers. The people who serve as volunteers, it's like the week in the in their year that it's like, oh yes. Oh yes. Absolutely. Yeah. hundred percent. And it's not moved by I want to get even with people. It's not like <laughs> <laughs> fraternity where hazing is going to be paying somebody back for what happened to me but it's got a higher purpose and a holy purpose if you're watching this i mean i've had a beside behind the scenes look at this and more than once i have seen our nationals and our polis volunteers on their knees praying for students weeping for students really wanting to see a breakthrough with students and it's so genuine so out of their heart of wanting to equip and help these students do the best job they can and to overcome every obstacle that they have in their life in order to do that. So those volunteers are some of the best folks in the world, in my opinion. I agree 100%. One of the things that Kevin said, who, if you listen to the episode on the Polis chief, one of the things he said is he said, you know, when I'm looking for a Polis officer, I'm not looking for somebody who's like big and mean and tough. 
I'm looking for somebody that loves students. Now, we really have the greatest volunteers on the face of the earth, and huge, huge thanks to John and Bob and Brett and all these guys that began sending students that became our volunteers that trained the next set of students that became volunteers, and some of them that have volunteered with us for so many years. So thankful. Let's talk with these guys a little bit about developing their overseas partner network, how they screen for overseas partners, and more. Well, you have to be invited to come. <laughs> you know, I mean, you can't strong arm your way into another person's ministry because we're volunteers. They're made up of students primarily, and sometimes the team leaders, most of the time, the team leaders are students. So to suggest that a group of 19 and 20 year olds can, can do anything to help a 25 year old veteran career person, you know, that's that in itself can be suspect. And so there needs to be communication with that person. Now, a lot of it is done by one link, I know, but uh, we were in very close contact, our team with the career people on the field before we ever went. You know, we had to do purity protocol and all that. We checked in with the parents of these people. What can we take? Maybe birthday gifts for children, understanding their their family situation. And, and so we were primed to go minister to that couple. In fact, in some ways, maybe half of our energy and prayer was to that couple because to be invited back, that's the crucial thing. You know, sometimes you can get a first-time invitation, but uh, I remember when we left the, the city we were in, this career missionary gal said uh, she was sobbing, and she and, and the, the husband too, and they said, it is going to be so hard for you to leave. We so want you to come back. You have to have that kind of relationship with people if you're going to come back. Now, sometimes you can use smoke and mirrors to get there the first time, but you're not. that's not going to work the second time. You know, it's like any relationship of depth takes time, and you've got to be willing to do it. And you've got a campus minister that's busy and a church leader that's busy, and yet they're getting ready to, they're thinking about taking a team overseas. Well, they've got to put some things on hold locally if it's really going to work in the long run. Again, they can, you know, they can have some smoke going on for one time, but uh, we're we're after bigger stakes than that. I know that's the history of one link. We're after the long term because that's where we see the real results happen in the 1040 windows in other places we, we go to. Let's jump over to Brett on how to get invited back. On the field, I'll start there. Before we started doing the training, there was a reluctance to having teams by people on the field because they felt it took away from the work that they were doing. But once we did the training, which was designed to have a team that's self-sufficient, that's able to function safely and effectively, apart from day-to-day -day supervision of an M, suddenly this became a win. 
And one of the things we tried to, to train the team to do was to serve the M's overseas. And so suddenly, I won't say suddenly, over a period of time, the people we were sending people to felt bonded to the team because the team had really served them. And one of the things we tried to train the team is you don't, when you go to somebody's home, you leave it in better shape than you found it. And if they serve you a meal, they don't do the dishes. And we tried to coach them even in how they related to the M's of how God could use them in their life. And we we tried also to select partners overseas who were not afraid of college students and who saw that as an opportunity for them to cast vision for those students. They would do more than just do tactical stuff with the students, but they would involve the students in their vision and the students would know what's going on. And then to maintain ties with those students to where that student is, is connected there for as long as they want to be. And so the that that's part of how we sorted through who's going to be an overseas partner is who is not afraid of students, who would see students as a place where they could have a ministry to those students. And so that, and a person that has a vision for their city. Now let's jump over to John and get his take on screening overseas partners. How would they pick them? I had just asked John about why we do whole summer trips. Well, I think in terms of taking a whole summer and staying longer, I like to think that one link is short-term missions with long-term impact. Because partnerships, often students would make multiple trips, but they'd go back to the same place where they'd been multiple times. The partnership was not with a place, it was with a person. Our dear friend, Lisa. I just have to stop a minute and say this on a personal note. Lisa is the lady my wife worked for overseas when we first met. My wife often says that Lisa was the best leader she ever worked for. She was great at planning things for teams to do, great at delegating one-link teams to different team members on her team to be their go-to person so she'd have the ability to host more teams. Then she was also really great at casting a vision for team members to come back. Sadly, she passed away at the age of 51 a few years after she left the field. She impacted a lot of people. You can hear how much John and Peggy thought of Lisa just in the tone of his voice. Our dear friend, Lisa, because of the kind of woman that she was, she had people begging to come and work with her for years. So partnering with the right folks, knowing the right folks overseas, and then guys that I knew that trusted me, I could take and introduce them to people. So if you were working overseas and you had a partnership, the partnership stayed with you. It wasn't with the place. So we've had guys and gals that have moved, especially recently. You know, there's been a huge upheaval in where workers have been for years and can no longer be there. 
but the partnership continues. We really wanted people that shared our vision and shared our values. And we, this kind of conversation. By this kind of conversation, he means a conversation on Zoom or on video chat. Doesn't lend itself to understanding people. We wanted to see how they, how the husband treated his wife, how he treated his kids. Do we want our students in a place that they will just use the students but won't really invest in them? It usually, it would take a visit. I had one guy that was working. He had actually grown up in the Middle East, and he had heard that we didn't take, we didn't partner with people where where we didn't know them, we didn't spend time with them. And he was stateside, he called me and he said, John, I'd like to come spend a week at your house. And I said, great, come on. You know, we'll, we'd be glad to do that. I'd rather, I'd rather be in his home overseas, but he was stateside. He was a guy that worked in Central Asia and opened up a lot of, a lot of doors for us, worked with the same people group that Brad did. As you might imagine, screening an overseas partner is a weighty responsibility. But it's also a long ways over to the other side of the world. How do you balance these two things? These guys had wives and families at home. So I asked John how long he would spend with a person trying to evaluate if they were a fit or not. I could generally tell if it was going to be a good fit, if I could be around their family for three or four hours. didn't take long to up on that. But I wanted to I wanted to be with them, watch them interact with people where they lived and not just their team, but also locals. You know, what did it look like? Is this going to be a good fit? Can students really handle this? Some places were really difficult in terms of just living. So but usually a couple to maybe three days. If there was more than one person in a city. It'd take a little longer because I wanted to meet their team. I heard a story that my buddy Jonathan rode you around on the back of a bike across our city. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. I hurt so bad after that. (laughs) That was that was a great time, but it uh, it took more out of me than I thought it was going to. (laughs) Yeah, that's commitment there on your part. Yeah, I think uh, I think our friend Lisa kind of got on <laughs> about that. <laughs> yeah, I think I think so too. But he gave you the authentic the authentic tour. <laughs> yeah, I got it. I, I asked John how he handled all the travels and traveling so much, and he deferred to his wife Peggy. Mostly, Peggy's the one that had to handle all the travels. She it was hard for her. I think especially early on when we couldn't. We didn't have connections, couldn't make a phone call. Phone calls were very, very expensive. And if you did call, our daughter was still home early, early on, but we were close to being empty nesters. So I remember one time I'd had two trips and uh, another opportunity, a trip came up, an opportunity to go to Afghanistan and we were going to be gone I think the whole trip was like five days. So getting there, we only spent a day and a half there and then came back. And it was in the middle of a couple of other trips I'd taken. 
<laughs> I woke up one night in the middle of the night and sat up in bed and said, where am I? And Peggy said, honey, it's okay. You're home. And I said, well, where am I supposed to be? <laughs> Travel will take its wear and tear on you for sure, even on hard chargers like these old codgers. But you know, when I'm old, I'd much rather have stories like these to tell than to tell the same old story about how I never tried anything for God. It's not enough just to send students well. You also have to bring them home well. But I think one of the things that I worked on during my doctor of ministry degree was how can we effectively bring students back into the U.S. from these things and maximize their experience overseas to where it's not like been there, done that, got the t-shirt, but that the student themselves begins to have a vision for how God would use them back here in a way that he didn't use them before. How could they incorporate what they learned overseas with what their life is now? I did a study on that, and much to my surprise, when I got to the literature search on that, that there was only one paper in existence that was written about that. And it was some guy in South Africa, appropriately named Smith, who, uh, (laughs) who had done some work on debriefing short-term teams. You know, you can find now a lot about debriefing military folks who come back, PTSD. They've done a lot of work on that, but very little was done on short-term team that's gone two weeks, six weeks, eight weeks. Because you think, big deal. You know, I I went to Europe for two weeks. Uh, I didn't need any special attention. I still remember seeing the Mona Lisa, you know. But that's not the purpose of our trips. But per se, they're there for a different purpose. And and they're, they're there to find maybe something God has for them that they wouldn't find if they spent their summer in Emporia, Kansas. And so I developed a series of questions that I think have been put into some debriefing things that one link sends out several weeks after the teams come back for them to discuss. So what I found from that is that when a student came back from overseas that they had an affinity for international students on their campus. And so one of the things I would encourage our students here is like, yeah, you're going to lead a Bible study, you're going to do this and that. But what if you found an international student that you could talk with? It's kind of like, well, you knew what it was like to be international where you were, and now they are an international here. What would have been helpful to you? Well, what would be helpful to them? So we found that students who came back suddenly began to see international students that were invisible to them before. And we would encourage them, you know, in your class, if there's someone who's an international in a in a class, that you would go up to them, talk to them, you know, suggest 
being a study partner and maybe they could help you with your studies. Uh, <laughs> that's usually the way it is. And that they would begin to see opportunities around them that they would not have seen otherwise. And so that's part of the the debriefing process that I put together was having eyes to see and to put yourself out there just like you would pray for somebody that you'd meet on campus. What if you began to pray for that international student that was in your class, you know, and, and began to be strategic in what they did, just like they were strategic overseas. I'm going to be having lunch with so-and-so. Pray for me. I'm going to have lunch. Well, who might you have lunch with that isn't yet a believer that you could have your Bible study praying for you? And then you come back and report this happened. And then the Bible study is like, oh, well, maybe I could do that with somebody. So the whole issue of setting an example of reaching out to strangers and people who just aren't going to show up at your meeting, that that began to be a, a fabric in the ministry. As we get to this last group of questions, I sort of grouped it together just in the advice column. If they were going to give advice to this generation, to this generation of college ministers, give advice to me, what would they say? At what point in time in your years there, how long would you say it took you till you had a like ascending culture, like that's part of like when you came into your Christian challenge, people just pretty quick were like, oh yeah, we're, we're definitely going. That's part of who we are. Well, I would say that it was in the mid eighties, probably 12, 15 years before that became sort of the expectation. It, it was no longer, does anyone want to go? It's who's going to go change from please somebody go to who want, who's going to be going this year and who you, and you know, part of the debriefing is who, who do you know that going overseas like you did would be a blessing to them because best recruiter is students who've had a good experience. We had a team that had a bad experience in somewhere in the two thousands and that nearly killed us in terms of recruiting for the future years. Here's Tyler with a question for Brett. If you were to talk to, let's say, somebody that's interested in partnering with One Link and is interested in sending students, what would you say to them in how to develop a sending culture? But then also, if they do send, because I mean, that might be something where they hear, oh, a bad team this could happen to me. Maybe this isn't something we do. What would you say to them in that regard as well? Well, I would say as you teach the word, have your eyes open to every time as you're teaching the word, it talks about God's heart for the nations. That that doesn't need to be a once a year talk. That needs to be something that as you're teaching, as you're in a particular passage, that you 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 underline that you highlight that that god's purposes are global it's the nations i was just i'm reading through uh, matthew now and I, I was just struck by jesus's galilean ministry that it's his 
Galilean ministry is basically outside of the Bible Belt. Jerusalem was sort of the Bible Belt. Galilee was outside the Bible. It's called Galilee of the Nations. And the reason it was called that is that was a big mixing pot. And isn't it interesting that, that Jesus didn't go to Jerusalem to get his stuff started? Actually, Jerusalem just was a real pain. But it was the Galilee of the Nations where Capernaum and the Decapolis and these other places where a woman would come to him with a child that had a problem. She was not a Jew. And then he would take heat because he cared for her and he saw her and he healed her child. You know, so as you're teaching through the Bible, as a leader on a campus, you just cannot afford to not help open people's eyes to the global nature of what Jesus did and Paul and all of the apostles, that that is our our mission is local and global, that it's both. So that's one thing I would say is that you you teach. I think another thing, Tyler, is you emphasize how messy everything is. You know, you tell me if you can teach through First Corinthians and not talk about how messy it is. Or any of these books, any of these stories. It's messy. And Jesus, his ministry to the disciples, you know, like, oh, ye of little faith. You know, he's shaking his head and pounding his head against a wall. It's like, what's it, what's it going to take here? And just how messy it is. And so we should, really should not be surprised when a young adult or even an older adult really messes up. But how do we deal with mess? in our lives and the lives of people around us. The whole idea of a per perfect situation where everything's just going to be wonderful just does not exist. In the debriefing we do of every team, it's like, is there something that you said or did that you need to clear up with someone that was on your team? That the relational thing, you know, we're not very good at this. And so we, we just need to admit we're not very good at it and then address it. Don't just sweep it under the carpet and act like we're angels, you know. So that's, I think that's another thing that uh, a local director needs to emphasize is that we're called to a very high ideal and high character, and yet we fall short. And how do we forgive ourselves and how do we forgive other people that that needs to be in the teaching and and again that's not a once a year sermon but it's something that you just deal with and and I think to give illustrations if you're if you're pastoring and shepherding students to give illustrations from your own life the life of your former students Experiences overseas, experiences of victory, experiences of failure, and to just be totally honest about it. I mean, I think this generation is wonderful because they can smell hypocrisy a mile off. And I think the ministries that are just very honest and 
tell the truth about how things really are, that those will be the ones that will do well. So when this one team that had a problem, you know, when they got back, some of them weren't talking to each other. And so Mary and I had a meal for them to come over to our house, and I did a a live conversation with them. Some of them were not willing to move as fast and far as I wish they would at that time, but I think they did make progress. Encourage them to honest about their team because everyone on campus knew that they had a problem and that they'd be honest about it. Say, yeah, we're still working through our dynamic. I'm still hurting from some things that happened this summer that you don't have. You're not required to act like everything's wonderful, but I'm working on it. Pray for me. Here's another piece of advice from Brett that I thought was just really insightful about how his ministry changed over the years. I always said when I was leading locally that I I had to reinvent myself every five years because in about a five-year period, the culture of the college student changed. The, the music they listened to, the influences on their life, what family life looked like. I could have never have envisioned when I started here that more than 50% of the students on campus would be from broken homes. In 1972, that was the anomaly. That was shameful. But in 2023, that's the norm. The shock is, oh, your folks are still together, huh? How's that happen? How's that work? And so if we don't adapt and see those needs for where they are today, then I don't know who we're ministering to, but we're not ministering to the people that are sitting in front of us. You know, when I left my local ministry, I broke things down into five-year periods, and I could see, looking back over 41 years, the adjustments that we had made in five-year increments. And I think every growing organization should change. Let's jump over to Bob and get some advice there. We were asking him about how to build a sending culture and how to develop a heart for the nations and students. Well, I think it has to be embedded in your own heart. And I prayed for China for uh, 27 years before I got to go. I read History of China, any book about China. I read Mao's biography. And in everything I could learn about China, I did. And I was praying all along. So when the opportunity came, I mean, I didn't need any convincing. It was just what, I mean, because of what God had done in my life. So I think someone starting out, you have to sensitize your heart to the world. And, and I think that means study. And I think it means prayer. I think it means talking to, to people who've been there, uh, people returning. And so you begin to sensitize your heart to it. And then, you know, you begin to just dream with God 
God, how what would it look like here in my situation as a church leader, as a campus leader? How could I make this work? You know, you may need advice, like one link to go to talk to the people there who've been there and done that, or or other people that have returned. But I don't think it's that difficult to do, but you do have to feed your soul with that vision and that heart that is by the way god's heart too what would you say in the in the race that you've run have been like the biggest challenges you've had to overcome but then also what have been the biggest joys that you've noticed and what have you learned about yourself in the in the years that you've been running yeah that's that's a pretty loaded question there uh take your time <laughs> I, I think what has become my sweet spot that started in college was the union with Christ, the vine and the branch, or I'm the branch abiding in the vine. And so whenever I speak, whenever I talk to individuals, I talk about the indwelling Christ and that there's never a moment that he's not with me. And so it's more than having a quiet time in the morning, which I do. It's the union with Christ every moment of every day. And I don't sleep as well as I used to when I was younger. Last night I was awake at 2.30 and I turned to verses. I turned to prayer. I'm already praying for the tribe Ali. I'm, I'm learning the names of the of the team leaders. I'm, I'm not as good as memory as I used to be, so I need a little extra time. And, and so that's, that's what I'm about. You know, I can do other things. And so it's the caring for our soul that really is what I'm about. That's my sweet spot. What does it mean to care for your soul? You know, Proverbs says, guard your heart at all costs. How is that done? And so I, that's kind of where I am. That's what brings me such joy. And also another thing that brings me joy is helping people experience healing from heartbreak and trauma. And over the past three or four years or so, Sandy and I have really leaned into that with so much brokenness with adults, with college students. And so how to, how to help people not only cope with their heartbreaks, with their losses, but how to really experience healing from them. And there's a big difference. There's no silver bullet, but but we lean into that now. So those are a couple of things that really bring joy to us. Uh, I think the hard things, part of it is that self-disclosure here. I, I have struggled over the years with, with fe feeling inadequate. You know, I get around people like John and Brett, and they just seem like they have so much going for them. And I, you know, I grow up, grew up, I think, feeling somewhat mediocre. And and it's not because it's just how it happened, I guess. And so I've had to struggle with meeting God and his adequacy rather than leaning into my feelings of not being able. And and I think that's one of my has been one of my biggest struggles over the years. You know, I walk into a room with these guys in it and I tend to want to just kind of sit on the back row 
And, you know, I got, I know God can use me, but that's my default if I'm not really walking with God. I, I think we've seen a lot of heartbreaks over the years when, when you've been in ministry as long as I have. A lot of people don't make it, and it's just the choices they make, and, and those have been great losses to Sandy and me. It's how we are wired to get close to people. I'm not just running a, a ministry, but I, both of us engage deeply with people. So when someone, you know, takes off in the Thule's, rejects Christ, it, it's, it, it's deeply hurtful. I, I'd say that would be a part of that heartbreak that we had. I so appreciate that advice and his authenticity. Let's jump over to John now. If you've listened carefully, you've noticed through this series that God didn't always do things the way these men thought he would, and we're the better for that. In the history of One Link, we have been through two coups. This one was in the early days. It's the kind of thing that you might think would ruin a newly blossoming ministry. You might think, God, why would you do this? Why would you let these college students who committed to going, committed to raising money, why would you let that happen? Here's John on the coup in Cambodia that happened while our students were there. It was Cambodia in 97, and the team was on the ground about five days before a coup broke out, brought them back home. Getting them out of Cambodia was a, a challenge, to say the least, because the airport had been bombed and runway wasn't good. So I think there were... 30 students on that team. Primarily, we combined some teams, and the uh, workers there said we they could handle them. And I think out of 30 students, 22 or 24 went back as journeymen. And some of the some of the guys, the folks that were on that, are still still serving overseas. So it was a huge huge number. Isn't that crazy? You'd think that'd be the last group that would ever be like, well, we got one guy out of that that went back. No, it was it was amazing what, what the Lord did in that. They actually even started a, um, a campus ministry there in the capital city on that campus and named it Focus. So it was, I didn't know that till years, years later. I asked John how he cast vision and kept the focus on the right things. James, I think one of the critical things, and it's so hard as a campus worker to get get your head around this, we had lots of guys in the States say, man, could our students just come and go through a week? It would be so good for them. And we said, no, we, we're not set up to do that. The commitment we made to the workers on the field were we're going to do what we can to increase and bless your success. We want you to be successful. And so help us know what you need to be successful. And when local campus directors are thinking first about their students and not about how can we serve someone else, I don't think they're going to be as successful. You know, Paul said in in Philippians 2, don't do anything out of selfishness or conceit, but with humility, count others as more important than yourselves. 
looking not only not only to your own interest, we have a responsibility, but also to the interest of others. And one of the things that we did and and have done, I think, so well is put the the strategy, the heart, the family of folks that we were serving, that became primary. And it was easy to talk about that. So I think as as we shared, then the other thing that helped cast the vision was guys that had great experiences said, wow, this is, you, you can't know how much this has changed our ministry, helped our campus, helped our students. They became our best recruiters. So I'd get, after the first five, six, seven years, we didn't have to do as much beating the bushes to find partners. So I think taking guys with me on trips, telling stories, they don't need to know numbers. Stories is what matters. Did you have a, I mean, so much of it seems like it grew organically. When you started it, did you have in your mind, whether it came to pass that way or not, did you have like a five-year, 10-year, 20-year vision? No, not at all. We met a niche. There were things that needed to be done. We knew that students were available overseas. And to be able to think that far out, you know, when the Soviet Union kind of fell apart, that was a, that was just a wide open door. And we didn't know how long that was going to be there. So to plan for 20 years, I, I did have a plan. <laughs> Peggy reminded me of a conversation I had with a pastor when I first met Harold. I was driving to a conference with my pastor and minister of music at the church where I was on staff. And I was really pumped up about 2 Timothy 2.2, being able to entrust to faithful men those that would teach others also. And I just thought, you know, we, we really can make a difference in the world. We can have an impact on what, what the world is about, what God's about in the world. And I talk about that a lot, either at staff meeting with these guys or whatever. And I remember he said something to me that I, he said, you know, John, when I was your age and I was full of zeal and boy, I just thought I could, I could change the world. You know, it's just not that easy. And that's not reality. So basically said, you just need to get over that. And I, I never did. I, I did learn some things, though, one of which I had asked, I had asked the Lord that over my lifetime that he'd allow me to have the privilege of investing in, in a hundred men that would make a difference in the world, that I could, there'd be at least a hundred that I could invest in. And I learned two things about that. The first thing I learned was I didn't ask for enough because God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond anything that we would ask or think. And the second thing I learned was no one person invest. No, I don't have just one person investing in my life. So what I should have asked him was, would you let me be a part of thousands and thousands of people who walk with you 
because I'm only going to be a small part. And he's answered that prayer. People that I don't even know about and won't know about. This side of heaven, certainly. So I didn't listen to this pastor, and I did have and still have lots of folks that invest in my life. I'm 74, and I still make phone calls to get advice. I still need help. I don't have all the answers. And I'm so grateful that God puts people into our lives that'll make a difference. It'll be patient with us and love us, pray for us. And I thought, we never stop growing and learning. So Peg and I, we've just had an amazing journey. We've been a part of things that we never dreamed we could be part of. And we're so deeply, deeply grateful to the Lord for that. Well, my wonderful listeners, there you have it. It's been a real pleasure for me to get to interview these guys and hear their stories. It's been great going back and editing their interviews and hearing the stories again. You know, they are wonderfully hospitable men, probably because they all married well. All kidding aside, they are wonderfully hospitable, and I think I can fairly make this offer on their behalf. If you're going to be in their neck of the woods, they would love it if you would reach out and grab a cup of coffee with them. You'll hear some good stories, and don't be surprised if they ask some probing questions into your own life. I'm so appreciative of these men for what they did and the journey they started, and it's a journey you and I are still living on today. Whether you're a campus minister, an alum, or a current student, we all get to continue following God and pursuing His passion for the nations. Isaiah 49.6 says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may be known to the end of the earth. We invite you to continue walking this path of sending students to the nations with us. I leave you with these final words that God told Brett many, many years ago. If you're faithful to me, you disciple people, you train them. I will send them to the nations.